Welcome to Reimagining Atlantis. My name's Tori, and I'll be your host. My friends, welcome back. I am so excited to share with you what I re-stumbled across the other week. I kept the information in my head, but forgot where I'd found it. I actually still had it in my notes, and I just didn't scroll down far enough. I'm not sure if I've convinced you yet that Atlantis is in Africa by the Atlas Mountains, but by the end of this episode, you should be pretty well convinced. I forgot that this information turned me into a convert as well. Remember episode 4, where I claimed my excitement? This is it, and I couldn't be more thankful to you for pushing me to find it again by doing this podcast. I have a tentative spot circled for years now as to where Atlantis is. Of course, I can only lead the horse to water, right? There isn't much commentary from me, as I really don't need to do much explaining on Diodorus's work. He has two very detailed accounts on the Amazons, as well as his mentions on the Atlanteans, that I recommend a detailed read. I have been working on a book for a while on the Amazons based on multiple accounts. Based on multiple ancient accounts. A lot like how I'm doing this podcast, only far less commentary. Though, depending on how popular this podcast becomes, I might just add my snarky commentary. I rarely share this side of me with others. I figure that most people really don't care. Since Atlantis is such a vast and deep subject, there's no way to sum up everything over coffee. I love having this outlet to share my thoughts and organize my ideas. I love letting the creative side of me out in a world that is all too technologically based. People misunderstand my passion for belief I believe that there is a fraction of truth to these stories, and the root of the story could be true. Chiron, the centaur, for example. Perhaps there was a horse breeder or a vet in town that took on apprentices. I don't believe that there was actually a half-man, half-horse character. I feel very similar to Diodorus on his accounts and he is one of my favorite historical authors. I hope we find all of his lost works one day. For this episode, I will share with you the passage written by Diodorus himself on the Atlanteans. It's worth noting that Diodorus's library of history is considered by modern historians to be the most extensively preserved history of antiquity by a Greek historian. Diodorus died around 120 BCE. We have discussed our primary source for Atlantis, Plato, for some time now. I've danced over Diodorus's account, and now I think it's time that we learn about it. Most of his works leave divinity out of it. Since Diodorus died around 120 BCE, this is roughly 150 years after Plato wrote Atlantis. 
If we can accept Plato's account from Solon, they both have about the same distance in years, then Diodorus has an equally accepted account. Though Diodorus does not go into detail about the city and the customs of the Atlanteans, he does have a different take on the history of Atlantis. I really don't need to do a lot of paraphrasing here, as Diodorus keeps his accounts as scientific as possible. Here is Diodorus on the Atlanteans. The Atlanteans are reputed to far excel their neighbors in reverence towards the gods. The humanity they showed in their dealings with strangers. And this is an agreement of the most renowned of the Greek poets when he represents Hera as saying, For I go to see the ends of the bountiful earth, Okeanus source of the gods, and Tethys divine, their mother. So this goes back to the birthplace of the gods, and how Okeanus and Tethys were the mother and the father of the gods. It's also worth noting that during the Trojan War, the only place the Olympians deemed worthy was the blameless Ethiopians, and they spent their time with them during the war. Back to Diodorus and the first king of Atlantis. Spoiler alert, it wasn't Atlas. Their first king of Atlantis was Uranus, and he gathered the human beings who dwelt in scattered habitations within the shelter of a walled city. This caused his subjects to cease from their lawless ways and their bestial manner of living. They discovered the uses of cultivated fruits, how to store them, and a few other things which are of benefit to man. He also subdued larger parts of the inhabited earth, in particular the regions to the west and the north. So according to Diodorus, Uranus ruled over the west of the known world and worked his way up north into Europe. I presume this means Spain, Portugal, France, possibly as far as the Italian island of Tyrrhenia. Anyway, back to Diodorus. Since Uranus was a careful observer of the stars, he foretold many things which would take place throughout the world. He introduced to the common people the year on the basis of the movement of the sun and the months on the moon. He instructed them in the seasons which reoccur year after year. The people who were ignorant of the internal arrangement of the stars and they marveled at the events which were taking place as he predicted. They conceived that the man who taught such things partook in the nature of the gods. After he had passed from among men, they accorded him immortal honors because of his philanthropy and because of his knowledge of the stars. Wow. Just wow. Uranus was the first king of Atlantis, and he made our current day years and months. He was probably able to predict like lunar eclipses and solar eclipses, and I think that's what Diodorus is meaning in that. I could see how people would marvel at that, like, hey, check this out, 3 o'clock, the sun's gonna go dark. We've been told about other such stories throughout history, 
so why wouldn't Uranus do it, since he seems to have knowledge of astronomical events? Let's continue on. They transferred his name to the heavens, both because they thought he had been so intimately acquainted with the rising and the setting of the stars, and with whatever else took place in the firmament. Alright, so the firmament is best known in biblical cosmology, and it is a vast solid dome that was created by El, the God of Israel, on the second day of creation. And of the world, he divided the primal sea into the upper and lower portions so that dry land could appear. It's kind of like our atmosphere, and it's synonymous with the heavens or sky. Anyway back to Diodorus. They would surpass his benefactions by the magnitude of the honors which they would show him. For all subsequent time, they proclaimed him to be the king of the universe. To Uranus were born 45 sons from a number of wives. Of these, 18 were by Titia. They each had distinct names but all of them as a group were called Titans, after their mother. Titia was prudent and had brought about many good deeds for the peoples, so she was deified after her death by those whom she had helped, and her name was changed to Gay. It is worth noting that an alternative way of pronouncing Gaia is Gaia, so Titia could also be known as Gaia. Uranus also had daughters, the two eldest of whom were by far the most renowned above all others, and they were called Basila and Rhea, whom some also named Pandora. Basilia, who was the eldest and by far excelled the others in both prudence and understanding, she reared all of her brothers, showing them collectively a mother's kindness, and was given the title of Great Mother. After her father had been translated from among men into the circle of gods, she succeeded to the royal dignity with the approval of the masses and of her brothers. She was still a maiden, and because of her exceedingly great chastity, had been unwilling to unite in marriage with any man. Alright, so this is a real common theme in Greek culture. The chastity of a woman or a goddess. There's also a very strong undertone of female bigotry in most of the stories that come from Athens. For example, some of men's greatest accomplishments have been from the killing of a woman. Anyway, back to Diodorus. Later, she desired to leave sons who would succeed to the throne. So she united with marriage with Hyperion, one of her brothers for whom she had the greatest affection. There were born to her two children, Helios and Selene. They were greatly admired for both their beauty and their chastity. The brothers of Basilia became envious of her happiness from her children. They began fearing that Hyperion would divert the royal power to himself. The brothers of Basilia 
committed an utterly impious deed. They put Hyperion to the sword and cast Helios, who was still a child, into the Aridnus River, drowning him. When this came to light, Selene, who loved her brother very much, threw herself down from the roof. Okay, so in Hesiod, in his Theogony, he calls it deep editing Aridnus, and his list of rivers being the offspring of the titans Tethys and her brother-husband Oceanus. He was called the king of the rivers. The Aridnus River is also known as one of the rivers to Hades. Personally, I think this river is near deep editing Oceanus by modern-day Cadiz, Spain. Near the Gates of Hades, or better known as the Gates of Gates, or also known as the Pillars of Heracles. This may even be the water that connects Oceanus to the Mediterranean Sea. Anyway, back to Diodorus. Basilia, while seeking Helios' body along the river, her strength left her. She fell into a swoon. She saw a vision in which she thought that Helios stood over her and urged her not to mourn the death of her children. He told her the Titans would meet the punishment which they deserve, while he and his sister would be transformed into immortal natures. Since then, that which had formerly been called the Holy Fire would be called by men Helios, the Sun, and that which is addressed as Mene would be called Selene, the Moon. I find this interesting as we see this word Mene again, like that island inhabited by the Ethiopian Ichthyophagi, and was considered sacred. The same island that is located in Lake Triton called Fla and Mene. Anyway, back to Diodorus. When she woke from the swoon, she recounted to the common crowd both the dream and misfortunes which had befallen her. She asked that they render to the dead the honors like those accorded to the gods, and asserted that no man should thereafter touch her body. After this, she became frenzied, and seized all of her daughter's playthings that could make a noise. She began to wander over the land with her hair hanging free, inspired by the noise of the kettle drums and the cymbals. All those who saw her were struck with astonishment. All the men were filled with pity at her misfortune, and some were clinging to her body. When there came a mighty storm and continuous crashes of thunder and lightning, in the midst of the storm Basila passed from sight, the crowds of people were amazed at this reversal of fortune, and they transferred the names and the honors of Helios and Selene to the stars of the sky. For their mother, they considered her to be a goddess and erected altars to her. They began imitating the incidents of her life by pounding the kettle drums and the clash of the cymbals. They rendered to her this way sacrifices and all other honors. These are the myths which are told about the mother of gods, both among the Vigerians and by the Atlanteans, who dwell on the coast of the ocean. 
Now I'm going to say that the Phygerians were a Bronze Age ancient Indo-European speaking people who inhabited the central western Anatolia or modern day Turkey. They were related to the Greeks. The Phygerians have some famous stories such as King Midas of the Golden Touch and the Trojan War, Paris, is represented as non-Greek by his Phygerian cap. The Phygerians spoke the Phygerian language, a member of the Indo-European linguistic family. Modern consensus regards Greek as its closest relative. Diodorus makes note that both the Phygerians and the Atlanteans have the same creation story beliefs. Anyway, back to Diodorus. After the death of Hyperion, the kingdom was divided among the sons of Uranus, the most renowned of whom were called Atlas and Kronos. Of these sons, Atlas received his part of the regions on the coast of the ocean, and he not only gave the name Atlanteans to his peoples, but likewise called the greatest mountain in the land, Atlas. So now we have Diodorus, Plato, and Herodotus all saying that Atlantis was by Atlas mountains by the coast of the ocean. It doesn't get much plainer than that, folks. We have three different ancient accounts who all point to the same place. Anyway, let's continue back to Diodorus. They also say that he, Atlas, perfected the science of astrology and that he was the first to publish to mankind the doctrine of the sphere. It was for this reason that the idea was held that the entire heavens were supported upon the shoulders of Atlas. The myth darkly hinting in this way at his discovery and description of the sphere. There were born to him a number of sons one of whom was distinguished above all others for his piety, justice to his subjects, and love for mankind, his name being Hesperus. Atlas and Hesperus sitting in a tree. This still coincides with the Hesperides and the Atlantides. On ancient maps you can actually see Hesper and it's in the west. Anyway, on with the original story. This king, Hesperus having once climbed the peak of Mount Atlas, was suddenly snatched away by the mighty winds while he was making his observations of the stars and was never seen again. Because of the virtuous life he had lived and their pity for his sad fate, the multitudes accorded to him immortal honors and called the brightest of the stars of heaven after him. Atlas, the myth goes on to relate, also had seven daughters who as a group were called Atlantides after their father. These daughters lay with the most renowned of heroes and gods, and thus became the first ancestors of the larger part of the race of human beings, giving birth to those who because of their high achievements came to be called gods and heroes. Maya, the eldest, for instance, lay with Zeus and bore Hermes who was the discoverer of many things for the use of mankind. Similarly, the other Atlantides 
also gave birth to renowned children, who became the founders in some instance of nations and other cases of cities. Consequently, not only among certain barbarians, but among the Greeks as well, the great majority of the most ancient heroes traced their descent back to the Atlantides. These daughters were also distinguished for their chastity, and after their death attained to immortal honor among men, by whom they were both enthroned in the heavens and endowed with appellation of Pelides. The Atlantides were also called nymphs because the natives of that land addressed all their women by common appellation of nymph. Kronos, the brother of Atlas, was a man notorious for his impiety and greed, married his sister Rhea, by whom he begat that Zeus, who was later called the Olympian. There had been another Zeus, the brother of Uranus, and a king of Crete, who was far less famous than the Zeus who was born at a later time. Now the latter was king over the entire world, whereas the earlier Zeus, who was lord of the above-mentioned island, begat ten sons, who were given the name of Curates, and the island he named after his wife, Idea, and on it he died and he was buried, and the place which received his grave is pointed out to our day. The Cretans, however, do not agree with the story given above, and we shall give a detailed account of it when we speak of Crete. Cronos was lord of Sicily, Libya, and Italy. He established his kingdom over the regions to the west, and everywhere he occupied with garrisons, the commanding hills, and the strongholds of the regions. To this day, throughout Sicily, and parts which incline towards the west, many of the lofty places are called after him, Cronia. Zeus, the son of Kronos emulated a manner of life opposite to that led of his father, and since he showed himself honorable and friendly to all, the masses addressed him as father. As for his succession to the kingly power, some say that his father yielded to him of his own accord. Others state that he was chosen as king by the masses because of the hatred they bore towards his father. When Kronos made war against him, with the aid of the Titans, Zeus overcame him in battle. After gaining supreme power, he visited all of the inhabited world, conferring benefactions upon the race of men. He was preeminent also in bodily strength and in all other qualities of virtue, and for this reason he quickly became master of the entire world. In general, he showed all zeal to punish impious and wicked men and to show kindness to the masses. In return for all of this, after he had passed from among men, he was given the name of Zen. He was the inspiration of right living among men, and those who had received his favors showed him honor by enthroning him in the heavens. All men eagerly acclaiming him as God and Lord forever of the whole universe. These are... In summary, the facts regarding the teachings of the Atlanteans about the gods. Thank you so much for continuing to listen. Your support means everything to me. If you want to help make this podcast grow, please subscribe and tell just one other person about this podcast today. 
We are each our own hero in this story we call life. That means one person has the power to change everything. Who is the one person you tell today, hero? Let's help keep Atlantis alive, or at least reimagined. A new episode will be released every Thursday at 9 p.m. See you then. Wait, are you still here? Thank you. It's appreciated. Here's a clip for next week's episode. Now, I do want to stress that we're still in Libya here. That cave and temple of Athena was also in Libya. I also think that the original temple where Medusa was raped was in Libya as well. But I'll get to that later. Perseus left the cave and Medusa's sisters were chasing Perseus for revenge. Perseus came upon King Atlas of Atlantis and asked for hospitality. Atlas refused, so Perseus took out Medusa's head and turned him into stone, making the Atlas Mountains.